This morning's title is um, The Fight of Faith. So we're in uh, the third of a series about faith. The first was um, the foundation of faith. And we talked about not just believing in God, but believing God uh, as Abraham did. Abraham believed the Lord and that was his righteousness. And then we talked um, yesterday, not yesterday, last Sunday, about the, the fruit of faith. So living uh, a life where faith produces good things in our lives, growing in grace. And so uh, today is the fight of faith. There'll be two Sundays with visiting preachers now and then on the 3rd of September, God willing, uh, we'll conclude with the finish of faith. But today, the fight of faith. I don't know if you ever sung um, at school or perhaps in another church a, a Christian song that was very popular 40 or 50 years ago. I certainly um, sung it, The Lord of the Dance. Does it come to mind, dance then, wherever you may be, I am the Lord of the Dance said he. It was really um, popular, and it portrays Jesus' life uh, and mission as a dance, and it portrays the Christian life as uh, a dance, and we follow Jesus in his dance. He calls us to dance after him, and for many people in many churches, that was uh, a lovely picture, a lovely metaphor of the Christian life. The trouble is the Christian life as you read in scripture, is emphatically not uh, a dance. You cannot read uh, church history and think that people like John Knox or William Tyndale or Martin Luther or the others, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you cannot read their lives the way they lived for Christ and view it as a dance. The Christian life is a fight. Dancing is about maneuvering. Uh, dancing is about posture. Dancing, I'm not talking about disco dancing and nightclubs. I'm talking about strictly now, strictly come dancing. It's about uh, so conducting yourself that you don't tread on anyone's toes. Uh, it can be glamorous. It can be elegant. It's always ordered and everything has to be just so. I don't think I need to tell you that the Christian life isn't about that. The Christian life is a warfare, and Christians are called soldiers. And warfare, in opposition to the glamour and elegance and posturing and manoeuvring of uh, ballroom dancing, warfare is costly and usually messy and urgent. And so the life of faith, the life that a true faith produces, the life of the person who receives the word of God and embraces it and says, I believe God, I take him at his word, and the life that from that faith produces fruit and action, that life of faith is not a dance. I want to say just um, four things from uh, the chapter. We're focusing really on verses 11 and 12 
particularly, but we'll draw from the whole of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. So let me just read verses 11 and 12 uh, again. This is uh, Paul writing to his uh, protege, his mentee, uh, Timothy. As for you, a man of God, flee these things. In other words, the love of money and uh, the covetousness that he's been talking about. Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The chapter is uh, making an assumption, and this is part of the Christian's worldview, that we live in a world at war. That's my first heading. We are in a world at war. And um, you might say, uh, what do you mean, a world at war? Uh, we've been through the First World War and the Second World War. 1945 brought the end of that war. You may have seen the film Oppenheimer, and you know that the atomic bomb, the atomic bombs, there were two, uh, at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, horrific events, uh, but they dealt with uh, other horrific events. And that brought an end to World War II, and there has not been, praise God, uh, a war uh, of that scale since 1945. But we are in a world that is at war because ever since Genesis 13, Genesis 3, I should say, the coming of sin into the world, um, the serpent, uh, the devil intruding into paradise, Ever since that time, there has been uh, a personal being waging war with God. There has been conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The principalities and powers that we read of in Ephesians 6, the uh, devil, Satan, and his demons have been at war with God and with everything and anything that represents Christ in the world. And so there is the reality of evil. And the world as Christians see it is not the same as the world that others see. We're aware of a different plane, a different dimension. We're aware that eternal issues are at stake. And so when you read a verse like verse 9, it reminds us that there's more to life than just things that we can see uh, around us. There's a, another a spiritual uh, dimension. So verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Well, doesn't that bring you into a totally different dimension? I hear conversations at work all the time, admiring people who are rich and admiring people who want to be rich. And to want to be rich is, without question, a good thing uh, for them. And the thought that those desires are harmful 
is very far from their minds. And the thought that the desire to be rich could plunge anyone into ruin and destruction, that it could destroy their souls, that it could take them to hell, that isn't the way that the worldly mind thinks at all. But it's the way that we must think beyond the visible world. There are eternal issues being played out all the time. Something is always happening. Nothing ever stays still. Out there, there is a malicious and active enemy. There is a hatred out there towards all things Christian. We fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. Not people, not individuals as such, but their thinking and the way the world operates. Its values are totally at odds with the values of Scripture and God's priorities. This is why it's good to read church history, and it's good to be aware of the world around us, because you will see that although Christians uh, today in the UK live without persecution, we may be uh, patronized a little bit and uh, ignored, but we're not actively persecuted. Yet in past centuries in this country and today in other parts of the world, you can see visibly that warfare going on. You can see how much Christians are hated. Perhaps it would be better if Christians were hated rather than just ignored or patronized. If you know anything about uh, the history of how we came to have the Bible in English, you'll know about William Tyndale and how furiously the establishment hated William Tyndale. He had translated the Bible into English, basically at the cost of his own life. And everyone associated with William Tyndale was hunted down and tortured and killed. Tyndale himself was burned at the stake in Vilvorde in Belgium. The Bishop of London had 6,000 copies of Tyndale's Bible burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. Sir Thomas More, uh, the Chancellor at the time, is reported to have stamped on the ashes. There was a vicious hatred against Christians. And it seems uh, to me, it may seem to you that the world has a unique contempt for Christians, that it doesn't show to any other minority or any other religion. And so if you read websites like Barnabas uh, Fund, you will see that in places like Myanmar, Nigeria, Pakistan, other countries, there are very recent incidents of Christian churches being disrupted, their buildings destroyed, their pastors kidnapped and tortured. And think of what happened to Jesus himself if you want to see the workings of evil. People that would rather crucify the Son of God than admit that they were wrong. This is why Scripture speaks about the in 
a battle. And you'll know the passage in Ephesians 6 that speaks about Christians needing to take the whole armor of God. The world doesn't want us to think like that. The world wants us to uh, enjoy life and uh, to chill and uh, to be relaxed. That's why I chose the hymn uh, that says, Watch and Pray. So we are in a, a warfare. There is such a thing as uh, our verse there, verse 9 says, there's such a thing as ruin and destruction, the ruin and destruction of the person. Not just the emptying of, of, of a bank account, not just bankruptcy, not just forfeiting um, the house, something even worse than those horrific things, but to be destroyed eternally for the person, for the individual to be without God and to be in everlasting torments. Then, um, secondly, our battlefield, and um, this is verse 10, our battlefield, and there's a particular enemy, a particular combat that we're involved, and Paul uh, brings it to Timothy's attention in this chapter. He says, the love of money is a root. The song says, money is the root of all evil, doesn't it? But the text says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here it is, says Paul. There may be those in your flock, Timothy, who, whilst having a name to be Christians, are so attached to material things, and they are so covetous, and their ambition is so money-centered that they will, and you may see this, Timothy, they will wander away from the faith, and the heat of their love for Christ, the warmth of their affection to brothers and sisters will gradually fade away. It won't happen overnight, but that is what will happen, and they will cause themselves many pangs, many pains. So the battlefield that Paul identifies is the battlefield of faith getting mixed up with money, or to put it as verse 5 puts it, godliness becoming a means of gain. Profiteering from the gospel was something that Paul warns against elsewhere. It was something that he was at great pains to avoid. He wanted no one to be under the slightest impression, no one to have any excuse whatsoever to think that he had profited financially from preaching the gospel. That's why he was a tent maker. He supported himself. He made no financial demands on anybody, though, of course, the Lord did supply all his needs. Uh, read Philippians chapter 4. But there are false teachers, uh, verse 3 tells us, 
who teach a different doctrine and do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at different points in the New Testament church and through church history, there has been this battlefield. There have been those who come into the church with false teachings and have themselves profited and made themselves rich at the expense of other believers. Jesus um, uses the example of the Pharisees and he says in Luke 20 that they for a pretense make long prayers and he says in a very striking phrase they devour widows houses they help themselves to what godly widows had they devoured them and on the pretext of needing support for the work of the temple and so on they made themselves rich this was true at the time of the, uh, before the Reformation as well, that there were uh, priests and others in the, uh, the church who made themselves rich by virtue of their role within the church. That was what they were able to do as they played on people's fear and guilt. It happened even in this country. It wasn't just in France or Germany, uh, as we read about uh, in various um, histories of the Reformation. It happened in this country. Uh, the church taught that there was a thing called purgatory. And those that died before they went to heaven had to spend time in purgatory, which was not hell, but an unpleasant place. And they had to wait there before they could go to heaven for X number of years. But the priest, on behalf of the Pope, could issue a certificate, and it would be sealed by the authority of the church, and it would remove time from this sentence in purgatory. Just recently, um, a seal was discovered in a field in Hampshire. It had been there for over 500 years, and it was a seal, perhaps it was on a large ring, uh, but a seal that the priest would press into hot wax and attach it to a certificate. And from their monastery, they would go into the local village, they would set up shop and say, do you want to reduce the time that your relative has to spend in purgatory? If so, here you are. And for a tidy sum of money, a certificate was handed over. In the case of what's called the Mottisfont uh, seal, this one in Hampshire, issued by the Augustinian Priory locally, it would remove one year and 40 days of purgatory for your chosen uh, relative. And so they would get to heaven all uh, the sooner. Martin Luther and others, of course, preached against that. How can you make the gospel how can you make salvation something that can be charged for how dare you demand money it's an attack isn't it on the grace of god and the free 
offer of the gospel. And in case you thought that those things were just historical, there's a modern-day equivalent. Um, and if I tell you the name Creflo Dollar, um, you'll know that where he's from, the United States of America, Creflo Dollar, and the clues in the surname. Apparently, he's changed his tack within the last uh, year or so. But... This man lived such an extravagant lifestyle that he was worth $27 million. And he had uh, his own private jet to go from one place to another. Multi-million dollar homes, expensive cars, and so on. Nothing wrong with expensive cars, uh, by the way. I did used to, this is my confession, I used to have a real problem with Christians who had expensive cars. I remember going to a church and seeing a Jaguar in the car park. And I thought, how can a Christian have a Jaguar? It's not an issue if, if you have an expensive car. But this Creflo dollar, it was the issue with how he obtained his wealth. And this is where the, the battle comes in. He is one of the false teachers that Paul is describing here. And he was so preaching to the thousands of people uh, that would listen to him uh, in person uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and then online through the world. He so preached that he made people feel that unless they gave and gave handsomely to the church, and then by extension to him, they would never be blessed. This is what he says. He says, the Bible says that wealth is stored up for the righteous, Proverbs 13, 22. However, it will remain stored up until you claim it. Therefore, claim it now. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. Well, that would be nice. But it's a cruel deception. And the way that um, his hearers were meant to activate their prosperity and a life of having everything they wanted was by, he says, the planting of seeds. So the person who wants financial prosperity must plant a seed of financial prosperity. And when he says planting a seed, he means give to the church, give to me. He says, you can say, oh God, I need money. The rent is due. The baby needs shoes. What about my breakthrough? But if you haven't sown financial seed, how can you expect a financial harvest? Those things are against the gospel totally. The gospel is free. And the church pays its minister and the church runs its ministries and does so in dependence on the Lord. And we do not extort and we do not play on people's fear or guilt in order to receive financial uh, recompense. 
No one is to be charged. No one is obliged. That ought to be made very clear. So there's the, the battleground. There are those who so mix up money and the love of money with their faith and with their church position that it is not clear what is really important for them, what is driving them. Is it faith in God? Is it trusting God to supply their needs? Or do they love money because of what it brings them, because of the power and the influence that it brings? Then thirdly, the chapter speaks about our strategy. What are we to do? What's the, the way to combat the love of money? What's the way to combat materialism? And we ought, by the way, to be very careful about judging one another in this regard, as I did with the, uh, the Jaguar. Uh, often we can say that anyone with more than us is uh, materialistic, but we need to examine uh, our own hearts very carefully. What's to be our strategy? Well, verse 11. As for you, man of God, flee these things. So, separate yourself from the love of money. Separate yourself from any hint that you are in it for what you can make. And give yourself, pursue these things, verse 11b, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Are you thinking of investing? Well, invest in these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, steadfastness, gentleness. Isn't it remarkable how just after that word gentleness, you get the word fight? Isn't that strange? That's not how other religions uh, see themselves. Uh, to, to, to fight for other religions will mean to claim territory. It will mean to uh, impose by means of force. It will mean to make people uh, convert. And yet here, immediately before the fighting, there is gentleness. There's a lovely verse in one of the Psalms that says, Thy gentleness has made me great. And this is the way by which Christians commend themselves. Not by money grabbing, and not by wealth, not by impressiveness, the way that Christians commend themselves, the way that Christians extend the kingdom is through righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. A soft answer turns away wrath. And it is the gentleness with which Christians conduct themselves 
And this contrast, doesn't it, to what we have read earlier in the chapter about the false teachers. In verse 4, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That isn't the gospel way. The gospel way is gentleness. And I don't think it's an accident that the aforementioned Creflo uh, Dollar was contacted by the police after uh, his daughter reported that he had tried to, to strangle her and he went on an anger management course. We're to be on our guard then to separate from all forms of covetousness and the love of money. We're to watch and pray Jesus said, doesn't he, in the, the parable of the rich man in Luke 12, to be on guard, take watch against all kinds of covetousness, because your life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. And you will have to fight. You will have to separate yourselves. And when you read the magazines and when you watch the adverts, that are promising you that you will be much cooler and much better thought of if you have this decor in your house or if you're wearing this or if you're driving this car or if you're going to this place on holiday, you will have to separate yourself from that mentally and say, no, my life doesn't consist in those things. My pursuit is righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Watch and pray. Don't overestimate your own strength. The devil is very subtle. He knows what buttons to press. He knows how easily we can fall into the world's way of thinking. That's why we need one another. We need checks and balances. And then lastly, our hero. There is one person that we, we look to. There's one, past, one person who has given us a pattern and who sets himself as the great goal of our faith, the goal of our striving, and the goal of our conflict. And of course, it's the Lord uh, Jesus himself. And so, uh, this is why Paul goes on in verse uh, 13 in our passage. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. And Paul is setting that forth to Timothy and to us as if to say, why would you be consumed by consumerism? Why would you be taken up 
with money. Why would you envy those that are rich? Why would you take comfort from things? Why would you be dazzled by the world and its entertainment and its celebrities? When Christ has gone before you and when he stands ready to receive you at the end. Why would you do what in effect betrays Jesus? There he stood before Pilate. The Lord Jesus had never once used his position, he never used his power to make uh, money and even anything that was in his own interests, he resolutely uh, refused to do. And the reason I think that uh, Paul mentions this appearing before Pontius Pilate is because of what Jesus said to uh, Pontius Pilate. John 18, 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. There's the testimony that Jesus bore before Pilate. The kingdom of God is not about food and drink. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, peace in the Holy Spirit. Our destiny and our investments, our inheritance is nothing to do with the things of the world. We can enjoy them, uh, but we mustn't hoard them and keep them to ourselves as though they were the things that gave us the most joy. They'll all go. That's why Paul says earlier in the chapter, we didn't bring anything into the world when we were born from our mothers, and we won't take anything with us when we depart. So why would you keep up around yourself, all those things. And we think of the Lord Jesus, don't we, as he's described in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, far from making himself rich, the Lord Jesus made himself poor. You hear about rags to riches stories, don't you? About people like um, Alan Sugar, who... Uh, from a humble market stall in East London, built up a vast multi-million pound empire. But you don't hear so many riches to rags stories. And that was the story of Jesus. Coming from the riches of heaven, worshipped by the angels. No sin, no contradiction of any kind, but then coming into a world where he would be opposed and humiliated, a world where he would live as a man and be hungry and thirsty, 
and where he would, in the body that he took to himself, be crucified. And so we're thinking about the pattern of the Lord Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, trusting in God. And we're thinking about the example uh, of the Lord Jesus humbling himself, coming into the world as he did. And we're thinking then uh, also at the end of verse 14 about that final time, the appearing of our Lord Jesus. And if only we could see the, the glory of that day. And if only the brightness and the, the dazzlingness of things around us, things on our screens, if only we could see that that will just disappear and fade completely when he appears. Why would you fix your heart on worldly wealth when there's something far better? The appearing of our Savior. No one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. There's the, the fight uh, of faith and by the grace of God and through the means of grace and together as believers, day by day, we can be separating ourselves from the world. God give us wisdom to draw the lines in the right places, but we won't go a step wrong if we are focused on our hero and thinking of his template, his life, his testimony, his death, and thinking about his appearing. Look straight ahead. Don't look to the left or the right. Look straight to him and his appearing. Amen. We'll sing a closing hymn. It's um, maybe a hymn that we haven't sung before, but it's um, a familiar uh, tune. Uh, it's the battle is the Lord.